93 by Victor Hugo Part 3, Book 4, Chapters 9 through 15 The fighting was horrible, as Simordan had said. That hand-to-hand combat went beyond anything that anyone could have imagined. To find something similar, one would have to go back to the great duels of Aeschylus, or to the ancient feudal butcheries, to those attacks with short weapons which lasted until the seventeenth century, and in which attackers broke into fortresses through advanced ramparts. These were tragic assaults, in which, says the old sergeant from the province of Alentejo, when the mines have done their work, the attackers will advance, carrying planks covered with sheets of tin, armed with round shields and mantelets, and supplied with a good quantity of grenades, forcing the defenders to abandon the retrenchments or rhetorades, and will thus make themselves masters of the fortress, vigorously throwing back the defenders. The place of the attack was terrible. It was one of those breaches called a sealinged breach, in technical military language. That is, as the reader will recall, it extended all the way through the wall, and was not a splayed fracture open on top. The gunpowder had acted as a gimlet. Its effect had been so violent that the tower had been split more than forty feet below the mine. This was only a crack, however, and the practicable break which served as a breach and gave access to the lower room was like a lance thrust which pierces, rather than an axe stroke which slashes. It was a puncture in the side of the tower, a long penetrating break, something like a well lying on its side, a corridor winding and rising like an intestine through a wall fifteen feet thick a kind of shapeless cylinder, cluttered with obstacles, traps, and the debris of the explosion, where one struck one's forehead against granite, one's feet against loose rocks, and one's eyes against darkness. The attackers had before them that dark hall, that mouth of an abyss, whose teeth, above and below, were the stones of the shattered wall. A shark has no more teeth than that frightful opening. The assailants had the task of going into that hole, and coming back out of it. Inside there were bullets. Outside there was the rhetorade. By outside we mean in the lower room. This ferocity occurs only in encounters between sappers in covered galleries when a countermine sets out to cut off a mine, and in butcheries with axes in the between decks of a ship boarded in a naval battle. Fighting at the bottom of a pit is the ultimate degree of horror. It is terrible for men to kill one another with a ceiling over their heads. When the first wave of attackers entered, the whole rhetorade became covered with flashes of lightning, and the sound was like that of an underground thunderbolt. The assailing thunder replied to the defending thunder. The detonations answered each other. Gauvin's cry arose, Forward! Then Lantanax, Hold firm against the enemy! Then Imanus's, Here, you men of Lemen! Then there were the clickings of sabers against sabers, and one after another frightful and lethal discharges. All this terror was dimly lighted by the torch attached to the wall. It was impossible to distinguish anything clearly. Everything took place in a reddish darkness. All those who entered there were suddenly deafened and blinded, deafened by the noise, blinded by the smoke. Dead and wounded men were lying amid the debris. The fighters stepped on corpses, crushed wounds, brought forth shrieks by treading on broken limbs, had their feet bitten by dying men. Occasionally there was a silence more hideous than the noise. The adversaries grappled with one another. The fearful sound of their breathing could be heard, then the gnashing of teeth, moans and imprecations, and the thunder began again. A stream of blood flowed from the tower through the breach and spread out in the darkness. This dark pool smoked outside in the grass. It was as though the tower itself were bleeding, 
like a wounded giant. Surprisingly, all this made scarcely any noise outside. The night was very dark, and there was a kind of funereal peace around the fortress, on the plain as well as in the forest. Inside, an inferno. Outside, a sepulcher. That clash of men slaughtering one another in the darkness, that musket fire, that shouting and rage, all that tumult, expired beneath the mass of the walls and the ceiling. The noise lacked air, and suffocation was added to the carnage. Hardly anything could be heard outside the tower. The children were sleeping during this time. The struggle became fiercer. The rhetorade held firm. Nothing is more difficult to force than that kind of V-shaped barricade. Although the defenders were outnumbered, their position was in their favor. The attacking force was losing many men. Stretched out in a long line outside at the foot of the tower, it grew shorter as it slowly moved through the breach, like a snake going into its hole. Gauvin, who sometimes acted with the recklessness of a young leader, was in the thick of the fighting in the lower room, with bullets all around him. Let us add that he had the confidence of a man who has never been wounded. As he turned to give an order, the glow of a volley of musket fire lighted up a face close beside him. Simordan, he exclaimed, what are you doing here? It was indeed Simordan. He replied, I've come to be with you. But you'll be killed. And what about you? But I'm necessary here. You're not. Since you're here, I must be here too. No, my master. Yes, my child. And Simordan remained beside Gauvin. The dead were piling up on the floor. Although the rhetorade had not yet been forced, it was obvious that superior numbers would eventually prevail. The attackers were in the open, and the defenders were sheltered. Ten attackers fell for every defender, but the fallen attackers were always replaced. The attackers were increasing, and the defenders were decreasing. The nineteen defenders were all behind the rhetorade, since that was where the attack was being made. Some of them were dead, and others were wounded. No more than fifteen were still fighting. One of the most ferocious, Chantonivere, had been horribly mutilated. He was a stocky, curly-haired Breton of the short, hardy kind. One of his eyes had been torn out, and his jaw was shattered. He could still walk. He dragged himself up the spiral staircase to the room on the second floor, hoping to be able to pray and die there. He leaned his back against the wall near the loophole and tried to catch his breath a little. Below him, the slaughter in front of the rhetorade was becoming more and more terrible. In the interval between two volleys of musket fire, Simordan raised his voice. Defenders, he cried out. Why make any more blood flow? You're trapped. Surrender. We have forty-five hundred men against your nineteen, so the odds are more than two hundred to one. Surrender. Enough of your silly chatter, said the Marquis de Lantanac, and a score of bullets answered Simordan. The rhetorade did not extend to the ceiling. This allowed the defenders to shoot over it, but it also made it possible for the attackers to scale it. "'We're going to make an assault on the rhetorade,' cried Gauvin. "'Will anyone volunteer to scale it?' "'I will,' said Sergeant Radoub. At this point the attackers were stricken with astonishment. Radoub had come in through the breach at the head of the attacking force, leading five other men of the Parisian battalion. And of those six men, four had already fallen. After he had said, "'I will,' He was seen going not forward, but to the rear. Stooping down, almost crawling between the legs of the combatants, he returned to the opening of the breach and went out. Was he running away? Could a man like that ever flee? What did it mean? When he was outside, Radoub, still blinded by the smoke, rubbed his eyes as though to drive the horror of the night from them, 
and looked at the wall of the tower in the starlight. He nodded his head in that satisfied way which means, I wasn't mistaken. Radub had noticed that the deep crack caused by the explosion of the mine went up from the breach to the second-floor loophole whose iron grating had been pierced and torn loose by a cannonball. The network of broken bars was hanging askew, and a man could pass through the opening. A man could pass through it, but could a man climb up to it? Yes, he could climb up along the crack, provided he was also a cat. That was what Radub was. He belonged to that race which Pindar calls the Agile Athletes. One can be an old soldier and a young man. Radub, who had been in the French Guards, was not yet forty. He was a nimble Hercules. He put his blunderbuss on the ground, took off his shoulder belts, his coat, and his jacket, and kept only his two pistols, which he put into his trousers belt, and his saber, which he held between his teeth. The grips of his pistols protruded above his belt. Having thus unburdened himself of everything useless, he began climbing the stones of the crack in the wall as though they were the steps of a staircase, watched in the darkness by all those members of the attacking force who had not yet entered the breach. Having no shoes was now an advantage to him, for nothing is as good for climbing as a bare foot. He thrust his toes into the holes in the stones. He hoisted himself with his hands and steadied himself with his knees. It was an arduous ascent, something like a climb up the teeth of a saw. It's a good thing there's nobody in the room on the second floor, he thought, because they wouldn't let me climb like this. He had no less than forty feet to climb in this manner. The higher he went, somewhat hampered by the protruding butts of his pistols, the more the crack narrowed, and the more difficult his ascent became. The risk of falling increased with his height above the ground. Finally, he reached the edge of the loophole. He pushed aside the twisted and loosened grating. There was ample room for him to pass through. He lifted himself with a powerful effort, rested his knee on the cornice of the ledge, grasped the stub of an iron bar in either hand, and pulled himself up waist-high in front of the loophole, with his saber in his teeth, hanging by both hands above the abyss. Only a few more feet, and he would be able to leap into the room on the second floor. But a face appeared in the loophole. Radub suddenly saw something frightful before him in the shadows, a punctured eye, a shattered jaw, a bloody mask. That one-eyed mask was looking at him. That mask had two hands. Those two hands were coming out of the shadows and moving toward him. One of them took both pistols from his belt. The other pulled the saber from between his teeth. Radub was disarmed. His knee was slipping on the inclined plane of the cornice. His fists, clenched around the two iron bars, were scarcely able to support him, and below him there was a forty-foot drop. The mask and the hands belonged to Chantonivere. Suffocated by the smoke rising from below, Chantonivere had succeeded in entering the embrasure of the loophole. There the outside air had revived him. The coolness of the night had coagulated his blood and he had regained a little of his strength. Then he had seen the upper half of Radub's body abruptly appear in front of the opening. Radub, gripping the iron bars, had no choice but to fall or let himself be disarmed. Terrible and calm, Chantonivere had taken the pistols from his belt and the saber from his teeth. A fantastic duel began, a duel between a disarmed man and a wounded one. It seemed obvious that the dying man would be victorious. One bullet would be enough to hurl Radub into the abyss yawning beneath his feet. Fortunately for Radub, Chantonivere had both pistols in one hand, and was therefore unable to fire either of them. He was forced to use the saber. 
he thrust its point into Radub's shoulder. This thrust wounded Radub and saved him. Radub had no weapons, but he still had all his strength. Ignoring his wound, which had not reached the bone, he pulled himself forward, let go of the iron bars, and leapt into the embrasure. He found himself face to face with Chantonniver, who had thrown the saber behind him and was holding a pistol in each hand. Chantonniver was on his knees. He aimed at Radub at point-blank range, but his weakened arm was trembling, and he did not fire immediately. During this respite, Radub burst out laughing. "'What an ugly sight you are!' he cried. "'Do you think you're going to scare me with that bloody pulp of yours? What a face!' Chantonniver was still aiming at him. Radub went on. "'Yes, your face has been beautifully shot up. It'll never be the same again, my friend. Go ahead, spit out your bullet!' Chantonniver fired. The bullet went so close to Radub's head that it took away half of his ear. Chantonniver raised the second pistol in his other hand, but Radub did not give him time to aim. "'I've already lost an ear, and that's enough,' he cried. "'You've wounded me twice. Now it's my turn.' He rushed at Chantonniver and knocked his arm upward, making him fire into the air. Then he seized his broken jaw and twisted it. Chantonniver howled, then fainted. Radub stepped over him and left him in the embrasure. "'Now that I've shown you I'm not playing, don't move,' he said. "'Stay there, you miserable snake. I'm not going to bother killing you now. Crawl on the floor, my half-witted fellow-citizen. Die. That's the most useful thing you can do.' You'll soon find out that what your priest told you was only nonsense. Go off into the great mystery, peasant. And he leapt down from the embrasure. It's dark as pitch in here, he grumbled. Chantonniver began writhing convulsively and shrieking in his death agony. Radub turned around. Quiet. Do me a favor and keep your mouth shut, citizen, without knowing it. I'm not going to do anything more to you. You're not worth the effort it would take to finish you off. Don't bother me any more." And with a worried look on his face, he ran his hand through his hair without taking his eyes off Chantonniver. "'What am I going to do? I've managed to get this far, but now I'm unarmed. I had two shots to fire, and you've wasted them both, you scum. And then there's this smoke that makes my eyes sting. He touched his wounded ear. Oh, he cried, and he went on. A lot of good it's done you to confiscate one of my ears. Well, I'd rather lose one of them than something else. An ear is only an ornament. You gave me a scratch on the shoulder, but that's nothing. Die, villager. I forgive you. He listened. The noise from the room below was frightening. The fighting was more furious than ever. Things are going well downstairs. They're yelling, Long live the king! They're dying nobly. His foot struck his saber on the floor. He picked it up and said to Chantonniver, who had stopped moving and was perhaps dead, I'll tell you something, you wild man. For what I wanted to do, my saber is useless. I'm only taking it back out of friendship but I did need my pistols. May the devil take you, savage. What am I going to do? I'm not good for anything here." He walked forward in the room, trying to see and get his bearings. Suddenly, in the semi-darkness, behind the pillar in the middle of the room, he saw a long table with something on it that was gleaming faintly. He felt along the table and discovered blunderbusses, pistols, and carbines, a row of firearms arranged in order and apparently waiting only for hands to take them. It was the reserve which the defenders had prepared for the second phase of the assault. It was a whole arsenal. A real banquet, cried Radub, and he threw himself on it, overcome with joy. Then he became formidable. 
The door to the staircase leading to the rooms above and below was visible, wide open, beside the table laden with weapons. He dropped his saber, picked up two double-barreled pistols, and fired them at random into the spiral staircase. Then he grabbed a musket and fired it. Then he took a blunderbuss loaded with buckshot and fired it. The blunderbuss, vomiting its fifteen pellets, sounded like a discharge of grapeshot. Then he caught his breath and shouted thunderously down the stairs, Long live Paris! Picking up a second blunderbuss, bigger than the first, he aimed it under the winding ceiling of the staircase and waited. The confusion in the lower room was indescribable. Such unexpected shocks disintegrate resistance. Two of the bullets from Radub's triple firing had been effective. One had killed the elder of the Picambois brothers. The other had killed Huzard, who was Monsieur de Caelen. "'They're upstairs!' cried the Marquis. This cry made the defenders abandon the rhetorade. A flock of birds could not have been routed more quickly. The men all rushed into the staircase. The Marquis encouraged their flight. "'Hurry!' he said. "'Courage lies in escape. Let's all go up to the third floor. We'll begin again there.' He was the last to leave the rhetorade. This bravery saved him. With his finger on the trigger of the blunderbuss, Radub was watching the staircase from the second floor. The first men who appeared at a bend in the spiral received the blast of his gun in their faces and fell. If the Marquis had been among them, he would have been killed. Before Radub had time to pick up another gun, the others passed. The Marquis was behind them all, and moving more slowly. They thought the room on the second floor was full of attackers, so they did not stop there. They went on to the room on the third floor, the mirror room. In it was the iron door and the fuse. It was there that they would have to surrender or die. The shots in the staircase had surprised Gauvin as much as the defenders, and he could not explain the aid that had come to him. He and his men had taken advantage of it without trying to understand. They had leapt over the rhetorade, and sword in hand, pursued the defenders to the second floor. There he found Radub. Radub saluted and said, "'Just a minute, sir. I'm the one who did it. I remembered Dahl. I did what you did. I caught the enemy between two fires.' "'You're a good pupil,' said Gauvin, smiling. After one has been in darkness for a certain time, one's eyes become used to it, like those of a night-bird. Gauvin saw that Radub was covered with blood. "'Why, you're wounded, comrade.' "'Don't pay any attention to that, sir. What does an ear matter? I've also got a saber wound, but I don't care about it. When you break a window, you always cut yourself a little. Besides, I'm not the only one who lost blood.' The attackers stopped in the room on the second floor, which had been conquered by Radub. A lantern was brought. Simordan rejoined Gauvin. They deliberated. They had good reason to reflect. The attackers did not know the defenders' secrets. They did not know how little ammunition they had, or that they were almost out of powder. The third floor was the last post of resistance. The attackers might well assume that the staircase was mined. One thing was certain. The enemy could not escape. Those who had not been killed were as though locked in the room on the third floor. Lantanac was trapped. With this certainty, the attackers could take a little time to think of the best way to bring the operation to an end. They had already suffered many casualties. They had to try not to lose too many men in the last assault. The risk of that supreme attack would be great. The first burst of fire would probably be murderous. The fighting was interrupted. The besiegers, masters of the first two floors, were awaiting their leader's commander before continuing. Gauvin and Simordan were holding counsel. Radub listened to their discussion in silence. He timidly ventured another salute. Sir, what is it, Radub? Do I have a right to a little reward? Of course. Ask whatever you like. 
I asked to be the first to go up the stairs. It was impossible to refuse him. Anyway, he would have done it without permission. While the attackers were deliberating on the second floor, the defenders were barricading themselves on the third. Success is a kind of fury, defeat a kind of rage. The adversaries on the two floors were going to clash savagely. Drawing close to victory gives one a feeling of intoxication. Below there was hope, which would be the greatest human force if desperation did not exist. Desperation was above. A calm, cold, sinister desperation. On reaching their refuge on the third floor, beyond which there was nothing for them, the defender's first concern had been to close off the entrance. Locking the door would have been useless. It was better to block the stairs. In such cases, an obstacle that one can see and shoot through is better than a closed door. The room was lighted by the torch which Imanus had placed in a holder on the wall near the fuse. In that room, on the third floor, there was one of those big, heavy oak chests in which clothes and linen were kept before the invention of furniture with drawers. They dragged this chest over to the door and stood it on end. It fitted tightly into the doorway, leaving only a narrow space at the top through which a man could pass. This would be excellent for killing the assailants one by one, although it was doubtful that any of them would try to enter through the opening. The blocking of the entrance gave them a respite. They counted one another. Of the original nineteen, only seven were left, including Imanus. Except for Imanus and the Marquis, they were all wounded. The five who were wounded, though very much alive, for in the heat of combat any wound which is not mortal leaves a man still able to move about, were Chatenay, known as Roby, Guinoiseau, Juanard Branche d'Or, Brandamour, and Grand Franqueur. All the others were dead. Their ammunition was nearly gone. Their cartridge pouches were empty. They counted their cartridges. How many shots could the seven of them still fire? Four. They had reached the point where there was nothing more for them to do than to fall. They had been driven to the edge of a yawning, terrible precipice. They could not have been closer to it. The attack began again, but slower and surer than before. They could hear the attackers sounding the staircase step by step with the butts of their muskets. There was no way to escape. Through the library, there were six cannons on the plateau, aimed and ready to fire. Through the upper rooms, what would be the good of that? They led to the platform, where the only recourse would be to jump off the top of the tower. The seven survivors of that epic band saw themselves inexorably enclosed and seized by that thick wall which protected and doomed them. They had not yet been taken, but they were already prisoners. The Marquis spoke. My friends, we've reached the end. And after a silence he added, Grand Franqueur will now become the Abbe Termo again. They all knelt with their rosaries in their hands. The sound of the assailants' musket butts was drawing closer. Grand Franqueur, bleeding from a bullet which had grazed his head and ripped his scalp, held up his crucifix in his right hand. The Marquis, a skeptic at heart, put one knee on the floor. "'Let each of you confess his sins aloud,' said Grand Franqueur. "'My lord, speak.' "'I have killed,' said the Marquis. "'I have killed,' said Juanard. "'I have killed,' said Guinoiseau. "'I have killed,' said Brandamour. "'I have killed,' said Chatenay. "'I have killed,' said Imanus. And Grand Franqueur said, "'In the name of the Holy Trinity, I absolve you. May your souls go in peace.' "'Amen,' replied all the voices." The Marquis stood up. And now, he said, let us die. And let us kill, said Imanus. 
The musket butts were beginning to pound on the chest that blocked the doorway. Think of God, said the priest. The earth no longer exists for you. Yes, said the Marquis. We are already in the grave. They all bowed their heads and struck their chests. Only the Marquis and the priest were standing. All eyes were cast down. The priest was praying. The peasants were praying. The Marquis was reflecting. The pounding on the oak chest reverberated mournfully. Suddenly, a loud, vigorous voice burst out behind them. I told you so, my lord. They all looked around, thunderstruck. A hole had just opened in the wall. A stone which fitted perfectly into the others, but was not cemented, and which had a pivot on top and one on the bottom, had just revolved like a turnstile, and in so doing had made a hole in the wall. When the stone had turned on its axis, it revealed a double opening, with one passage on the left and another on the right. These passages were narrow, but a man could go through them. Beyond this unexpected door could be seen the first steps of a spiral staircase. A man's face appeared in the opening. The Marquis recognized Halmelo. It's you, Halmelo. Yes, my lord. You can see for yourself that turning stones exist and that it's possible to get out of here. I've come in time, but you must hurry. In ten minutes, you'll be in the middle of the forest. God is great, said the priest. Save yourself, my lord, cried all the voices. All of you first, said the Marquis. You first, my lord, said the Abbe Termo. I'll go last, and the Marquis added sternly. Let's not try to see who can be the most magnanimous. We have no time for that. You're wounded. I order you to live and escape. Hurry. Take advantage of this way out. Thank you, Halmelo. Are we going to separate, my lord? asked the Abbe Termo. When we're out of the tower, we can only escape one by one. Shall we meet later? Yes, in a glade called the Pierre Gauvin. Do you know the place? We all know it. I'll be there at noon tomorrow. I want everyone who can walk to meet me there. We'll be there. And we'll begin the war again, said the Marquis. Meanwhile, Hamelo, in leaning on the turning stone, had discovered that it would no longer move. The opening could not be closed. Let's hurry, my lord, he said. I can't move the stone any more. I was able to open the passage, but I won't be able to close it. After long disuse, the stone had become stiffened on its hinges. It was impossible to make it move. My lord, Hamelo went on, I'd hoped to close the passage so that the blues wouldn't find anybody here when they came in. They'd have been mystified and would have thought you'd vanished into thin air. But the stone won't budge. They'll see the passage open and they'll be able to pursue us. At least let's not lose any time. Hurry. Everyone down the stairs. Imanus put his hand on Halmelo's shoulder and said, Comrade, how long will it take to go through that passage and reach safety in the forest? Is there anyone seriously wounded? asked Halmelo. They all answered, No one. In that case, a quarter of an hour will be enough. So, said Imanus, if the enemy should come in here in a quarter of an hour, they can pursue us but they can't catch us. But they'll be here in five minutes, said the Marquis. That old chest won't hinder them long. They'll be able to break it open with the butts of their muskets. A quarter of an hour. Who's going to stop them for a quarter of an hour? I will, said Imanus. You, Gouge le Bruin? Yes, my lord. Listen, of the six of you, five are wounded. I'm not even scratched. Neither am I, said the Marquis. You're the leader, my lord. I'm a soldier. A leader and a soldier are two different things. I know. Each of them has a different duty. No, my lord. You and I have the same duty. To save you. Imanus turned to the others. 
Comrades, the enemy must be stopped and delayed as long as possible. Listen, I have all my strength. I haven't lost one drop of blood. Since I'm not wounded, I'll last longer than any of you. Go, all of you. Leave your weapons with me. I'll make good use of them. I'll hold off the enemy a good half an hour. How many loaded pistols are there? Four. Put them on the floor. He was obeyed. Good. I'll stay. I'll keep them busy. And now, hurry. Go. Pressing situations eliminate thanks. There was scarcely time to shake his hand. I'll see you soon, said the Marquis. No, my lord, I hope not. Not soon, because I'm about to die. They all went down the narrow staircase one after another, the wounded men first. While they were descending, the Marquis took the pencil from his pocket notebook and wrote a few words on the stone which could no longer turn and which left the passage open. Come, my lord, said Halmelo. Everyone's gone but you. And Halmelo began to descend. The Marquis followed him. Imanus remained alone. The four pistols had been laid on the flagstones, for that room had no wooden flooring. Imanus took a pistol in each hand. He moved obliquely toward the entrance to the staircase, which the chest blocked and masked. The assailants were obviously afraid of some sort of surprise, one of those final explosions which are a catastrophe for the victor as well as for the vanquished. This last attack was as slow and prudent as the first one had been impetuous. They had not been able to break open the chest all at once, or perhaps they had not wanted to. They had demolished its bottom with the butts of their muskets and made holes in the lid with their bayonets and through these holes they tried to see into the room before venturing into it. The glow of the lanterns with which they were lighting the staircase passed through these holes. Imanus saw an eye looking at him through one of the holes. He quickly aimed one of his pistols at it and pulled the trigger. The shot went off and he was glad to hear a horrible cry. The bullet had entered the eye and passed through the head of the soldier who had been looking into the room. He fell back down the stairs. The assailants had made two rather large openings in the bottom of the lid, forming what amounted to two loopholes. Imanus put his arm through one of them and blindly fired his second pistol into the mass of attackers. The bullet apparently ricocheted, for he heard several cries, as though three or four men had been killed or wounded and there was a great tumult on the stairs as the assailants fell back. Imanus threw down the two pistols he had just fired and picked up the two that were left. Holding one in each hand, he looked through the holes in the chest. He noted the first effect he had produced. The attackers had gone back down the stairs. Dying men were writhing on the steps. The bend of the spiral allowed him to see only three or four steps. Imanus waited. I've gained time, he thought. Then he saw a man crawling up the stairs, and at the same time a soldier's head appeared from behind the central pillar of the spiral. Imanus aimed at his head and fired. There was a cry. The soldier fell, and Imanus shifted his last loaded pistol from his left hand to his right. Just then he felt a terrible pain, and this time it was he who uttered a shriek. A saber was piercing his entrails. A hand, the hand of the man who had been crawling up the stairs, had just gone through the second hole at the bottom of the chest, and this hand had plunged a saber into Imanus's belly. The wound was frightful. His belly was slit open from top to bottom. He did not fall. He gritted his teeth and said, All right. He then staggered over to the torch that was burning beside the iron door. He laid the pistol on the floor, took hold of the torch, and while his left hand kept his intestines from coming out through his wound, with his right hand he lowered the torch and lighted the fuse. 
The fire caught. The fuse blazed. Imanus dropped the torch, which continued to burn on the floor, and picked up his pistol. He fell to the floor, but was able to raise the upper half of his body. With the little breath he had left, he blew on the fuse to make it burn faster. The flame swiftly ran under the door and reached the building on the bridge. Then, seeing his abominable success, he smiled. He was perhaps more satisfied with his crime than with his virtue. He had just been a hero. He was now only a murderer, and he was about to die. They'll remember me, he murmured. What I'm doing to their children will avenge the child who belongs to all of us, the king who's now in the temple. At that moment there was a great noise. The chest collapsed after having been given a violent push, and a man rushed into the room with a saber in his hand. "'Here I am. I'm Radub, who wants to take me on. I don't like waiting, so I'm coming in. At least I've already sliced one of you open. Now I'm attacking you all. Whether the others follow me or not, here I am. How many of you are there?' It was indeed Radub, and he was alone. After the massacre Imanus had caused on the stairs, Gauvin, fearing some hidden mine, had made his men draw back, and was now conferring with Simordan. Radub, standing on the threshold with his saber in his hand, in that darkness in which the nearly extinguished torch cast only a faint glow, repeated his question. "'I'm alone. How many of you are there?' Hearing nothing, he stepped forward." one of those sudden gleams which dying fires sometimes give off, and which might be called sobs of light, burst from the torch and illuminated the whole room. Radub noticed one of the little mirrors hanging on his wall. He went over to it, looked at his bloody face and his dangling ear, and said, What an ugly way to be wounded. Then he turned around, amazed to see the room empty. "'There's nobody here,' he cried. "'Not one single man!' He saw the stone that had turned, the opening, and the staircase. "'Ah, I understand. They've absconded. "'Come up, all of you. Come. They're gone. "'They've run away. They've given us the slip. "'Here's the hole the rats went through.' How are we supposed to win out over Pitt and Coburg if tricks like this are going to be played on us? The devil has come to save them. There's nobody here. A pistol shot went off. A bullet grazed his elbow and flattened itself against the wall. Ah, so there is somebody here after all. Who was kind enough to give me that greeting? I was, said a voice. Radub thrust his head forward and made out Imanus's vague shape in the semi-darkness. Ah, he cried, I've got one of them. The others escaped, but you won't. You don't think so, said Imanus. Radub took a step and stopped. You, on the floor there, who are you? I'm a man who's on the floor and cares nothing about those who are standing up. What do you have in your right hand? A pistol. And in your left hand? My entrails. I'm going to take you prisoner. I dare you to try. Imanus leaned over the burning fuse, blew on it with his last breath, and died. A few moments later, Gauvin, Simorden, and all the others were in the room. They all saw the opening. They searched the room and probed the staircase, which led to an exit in the ravine. It was clear that the defenders had escaped. One of the men shook Imanus. He was dead. Holding a lantern in his hand, Gauvin examined the stone which had allowed the defenders to escape. He had heard of that turning stone, but he too had always considered the story to be groundless. As he looked at the stone, he noticed something written in pencil. He held the lantern up to it and read this. Till we meet again, Vicomte.
Lantanac. Gaychamp had rejoined Gauvin. Pursuit was obviously useless. The escape had been completed, and the fugitives had the whole countryside in their favor. The bushes, the ravines, the thickets, and the inhabitants. They were no doubt already far away. There was no way of finding them, and the whole Fougere forest was an immense hiding place. What was to be done? Everything would have to be begun all over again. Gauvin and Gaychamp exchanged their disappointments and their conjectures. Simordan listened gravely without saying anything. By the way, Gaychamp, said Gauvin, where's that ladder? It hasn't arrived, sir. But we saw a wagon escorted by gendarmes. It wasn't bringing the ladder, replied Gaychamp. Then what was it bringing? The guillotine, said Simordan. The Marquis de Lantanac was not so far away as they thought. He was nevertheless entirely safe and beyond their reach. He had followed Halmelo. The staircase which he and Halmelo had descended, after the other fugitives, ended near the ravine and the arches of the bridge in a narrow corridor with a vaulted ceiling. This corridor opened into a deep natural fissure in the ground, which led to the ravine in one direction and to the forest in the other. This fissure, absolutely invisible from above, wound under impenetrable vegetation. It would have been impossible to catch a man there. Once he reached this fissure, a fugitive had only to flee like a snake, and he could not be found. The entrance to the secret corridor from the staircase was so thoroughly obstructed by brambles that the constructors of the underground passage had not considered it necessary to close it in any other way. The Marquis now had only to go away. There was no need for him to worry about a disguise. Since his arrival in Brittany, he had not taken off his peasant clothing, feeling that it made him all the more a great lord. He had limited himself to taking off his sword. He had unbuckled his sword-belt and thrown it away. When he and Halmelo came out of the corridor and into the fissure, the five others, Guinoiseau, Juanard, Branchdor, Brandamour, Chatenay, and the Abbe Termo, had already gone. It didn't take them long to get away, said Halmelo. Follow their example, said the Marquis. You want me to leave you? Of course. I've already told you so. The best way to escape is all alone. One man can pass where two can't. If we were together, we'd attract attention. You'd make me get caught, and I'd do the same to you. Do you know the country around here, my lord? Yes. Do you still want us to meet at the Pierre Gauvin? Tomorrow, at noon. I'll be there. We'll all be there. Hamelow paused. Ah, my lord, when I think that we were once alone together on the open sea, and I wanted to kill you, and you were my lord and could have told me so, but you didn't. What a man you are. England, that's our only resource, said the Marquis. The English must be in France within two weeks. I have many things to report to you, my lord. I've carried out your orders. We'll talk about all that tomorrow. Yes, I'll see you tomorrow, my lord. By the way, are you hungry? Maybe. I was in such a hurry to get here that I don't know if I ate today. The Marquis took a bar of chocolate from his pocket, broke it in two, gave one half to Halmelo, and began eating the other. My lord, said Halmelo, to your right is the ravine, to your left is the forest. Very well. Leave me. Go your own way. Halmelo obeyed. He plunged into the darkness. There was a brief sound of rustling bushes, then nothing more. After a few seconds, it would have been impossible to pick up his trail. The woods of Le Bocage, bristling and inextricable, were the fugitives' auxiliary. One did not escape into them. One vanished. It was this ease of quick dispersal that made our armies hesitate before that Vendée, which was always falling back, 
and before those fighters who were such formidable retreaters. The Marquis remained motionless. He was one of those men who endeavor to feel nothing. But he could not avoid the emotion that came from breathing free air after breathing for so long in an atmosphere of blood and carnage. To feel completely saved after having been completely lost. To take possession of full security after having seen the grave from so close. To leave death and return to life. This was a shock even for a man like Lantanac. And even though he had been through similar experiences before, he could not prevent his soul from being shaken for a few moments. He admitted to himself that he was glad. He quickly overcame this feeling, which was almost like joy. He took out his watch and made it strike. What time was it? To his great surprise, it was only ten o'clock. When one has just undergone one of those vicissitudes of human life in which everything is placed in question, one is always amazed to learn that minutes so full are no longer than any others. The warning cannon shot had been fired a little before sunset, and the Torg had been invaded by the attacking force half an hour later, between seven and eight o'clock, at nightfall. Thus that colossal combat, begun at eight o'clock, was over by ten. That whole epic had lasted a hundred and twenty minutes. The quickness of lightning is sometimes mingled with catastrophe. Events are sometimes shortened in a startling way. On reflection, it was the contrary that might have been surprising. A two-hour resistance of such a small number against such a large number was extraordinary and that battle of nineteen against four thousand had certainly not been short or quickly finished. But it was time to go. Hamelow was no doubt far away, and the Marquis judged that it was not necessary to stay there any longer. He put his watch back into his jacket, but not in the same pocket, for he had just noticed that the key to the iron door, which Imanus had brought him, was in that pocket so that the crystal of his watch might break against it. He prepared to go into the forest. As he was about to turn left, it seemed to him that a kind of vague ray of light was shining on him. He turned around, and, through the underbrush, which now stood out sharply against a red background and had suddenly become visible in its smallest details, he saw a great glow in the ravine. He was only a few paces from the ravine. He walked toward it, then changed his mind, deciding that there was no need for him to expose himself to that light. After all, no matter what was happening, it was no concern of his. He again set out in the direction Halmelo had indicated to him, and took a few steps toward the forest. Suddenly, deeply hidden beneath the brambles, he heard a terrible cry over his head. The cry seemed to come from the edge of the plateau above the ravine. He looked up and stopped. <laughs>